traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-18 The Josephus Problem The simplest equation was 41 minus 41 equals 0. But then if you start going by 3s, well, 41 isn't divisible by 3. So what does that get you? 39 men with their throats cut lying on the floor of a cave, and a messy remainder of two survivors. Roman soldiers block the only exit, a boundary condition but not a factor. Each of the thirty-nine had died at the hands of his companions. It was a sacrifice, from the Latin sacrificare, to make sacred, or the Jewish carbonat, to draw near to God. Sacrificing for the greater good was one thing, but sacrificing when there was nothing to be gained? Did that make the sacrifice more noble, or just pointless? In the end, that was for the individual to decide, or, in this case, two individuals, eyeing each other anxiously over a blood-soaked pile of their dead companions. Joseph ben Metatiahu had played many roles in his young life. Through his parents, he was both a Hasmonean noble and heir of Jewish high priests. His youthful training had made him a scholar, and later a diplomat, who'd even been to Nero's court in Rome. Shortly after his return, he'd taken on additional roles, those of Jewish patriot, governor, and general. A general who'd never fought a battle, governor of a region far from his home, and a patriot who knew beyond a doubt that his people's cause was hopeless. If Joseph had sought war with Rome, his current situation could be considered ironic. But, of course, he'd been a moderate, and war was the last thing he'd wanted. Even so, two Jews trapped with daggers at each other's throats and surrounded by Romans could also be taken as a grim microcosm of the entire conflict. There was a point when it all might have ended with far less bloodshed, a quick Roman victory and return to the status quo. 
The Syrian governor Cestius Gallus and his army of 30,000 had faced little resistance as they marched south toward zealot-held Jerusalem. Six miles from the city, the Romans made camp. Since it was the Sabbath and Jews were forbidden from taking any action, Gallus didn't worry much about security. So it was fairly surprising when hundreds of zealots attacked the poorly defended Roman camp. The looming danger had compelled them to break their most sacred law, and they vented their anger at doing so against the Romans. In the vanguard of the attacking force were the striking figures of Monobaz and Cynodeus, princes from the Parthian province of Adiabene and worshippers of Yahweh. To be clear, Adiabene had no Parthian sanction for joining the Jewish rebellion. The peace between Rome and Parthia was secure. But the Adiabene king had taken it upon himself to risk Parthian displeasure by sending reinforcements to support the zealots. The initial Jewish assault supposedly resulted in 500 Roman dead to only 22 of their attackers, which sounds pretty implausible, even considering what's to come. On the rebel side, the losses included both Adiabene princes, along with several noble defectors from the court of King Herod Agrippa II. Since Agrippa was present leading his auxiliaries, he sent emissaries to Jerusalem to once more plead for peace. Though the attempt failed, it exposed ongoing divisions between zealot and moderate factions. Gallus decided to exploit the situation and sent his full army against Jerusalem. In short order, the Romans had seized the upper city and had zealot forces surrounded on the Temple Mount. This was the moment. Breach the temple walls through force or collaboration, and the zealots would be annihilated. The war would be over, and even if Nero imposed harsh terms, Roman Judea, Jerusalem, and the Jewish temple would all likely endure. So, what happened? Gallus was offered access to the temple by no less a figure than the former high priest, Ananus ben Ananus, but spurned the offer out of distrust. He then sent legionaries up to the wall with their shields locked in a testudo formation. Jewish arrows and sling stones rained down harmlessly as the Romans undermined the wall and prepared to set fire to the temple doors. The zealots saw their hopes fading and began deserting their posts, allowing moderates to seize critical positions and prepare to let the Romans in. It was all going perfectly, and then Cestius Gallus signaled the retreat. Whether due to confusion, cowardice, or, as Joseph speculated, Yahweh's desire to prolong the suffering of his people, Gallus inexplicably pulled all Roman forces from Jerusalem and marched them off toward Caesarea. Heartened by the withdrawal, the zealots regrouped and followed. The Roman rear and flank suffered constant attacks, a slow death by a thousand cuts, and before long, even senior commanders began to fall. The sluggish Roman pace allowed more and more rebels to join the assault. 
Gallus finally gave orders to kill the pack animals, shed all non-critical items, and make for the nearby town of Beth Haran. Now, a particular feature of Beth Haran was the narrow pass approaching the town from the plain. And I don't know if Gallus got the memo from Boudicca's revolt, but narrow passes are really effective places for small, disciplined forces to take on larger, disorganized groups. Like, say, poorly led Roman legionaries fleeing for their lives. Really, you just need to let the larger group enter the pass, dispatch your infantry to block both ends, then start raining down arrows and sling stones from above which was just what the Jews did. The assault lasted until nightfall, when Gallus finally managed to push through and reach the town. Even as he fortified his position, Gallus could see the zealots moving to block off all escape routes. Gallus decided to risk everything on a deception. He picked 400 of his bravest legionaries and had them man the fortifications giving the zealots the impression that the full Roman army was present. Meanwhile, Gallus took the bulk of his forces and marched them, in absolute silence, under cover of darkness, off toward Caesarea. In the morning, the Jews discovered the deception, killed the brave 400, and set off in pursuit. In the end, they were unable to overtake Gallus before he reached the safety of Antipatris. Still, the tally of his remaining forces was sobering. Since leaving Jerusalem, Gallus had lost almost 6,000 men, along with the eagle standard of the 12th Syrian legion. Back in Jerusalem, both zealots and moderates knew that total war with Rome was now unavoidable. Generals were drawn from both factions to govern and defend Judea. Due to his heritage and standing, the 29-year-old Joseph ben Metatyahu was made governor of Galilee, among the largest, most populous, and most militant of the Judean territories. He was also given control over a neighboring strip of Galanitus, which had broken with Agrippa's Tetrarchy to join the rebellion. The strongest city in that region was Gamla, a hilltop settlement fortified by the Seleucids during the wars of Alexander's successors. As a native Jerusalemite and stranger to Galilee, Joseph delegated administration to respected local figures and concentrated his efforts on defense. He built walls around all major cities, recruited an army of 60,000 men, and did his best to organize and train them in the Roman fashion. His force was rounded out by a bodyguard of 600, a few hundred horsemen, and 4,500 mercenaries, hired from where is unclear. His preparations made, there was little to do but wait, and, well, deal with ongoing internal unrest. Even under Roman threat, Jewish solidarity was still more theory than practice, and Joseph spent the next few months putting down a local revolt led by John of Geshala. Meanwhile, down in Idumea, Simon Bar-Giora rebelled against Jewish authorities and went back to the old zealot standby of plundering the rich and powerful. 
In Rome, things were barely more cohesive. Nero was so distracted by events in Judea that he almost had to skip competing in the Olympic Games. I mean, almost. But keeping good relations with the Greeks was still important, as was reinforcing Roman dominance. And Nero was really looking forward to racing that new ten-horse chariot team. But still, the news from the east was irritating, and something had to be done. A scapegoat would be nice, but, well, the Roman procurator of Judea, Gessius Florus, had already been replaced the previous year, and Cestius Gallus had just died in Syria a broken man. There was only one option left. It would have to be Corbulo. In 67 AD, the 60-year-old Gnaeus Domitius Corbulo still held the eastern imperium granted by Nero four years earlier. He was also popular among the Roman people for his skill and dedication, and his critical role in securing peace with Parthia. But, as Octavian had once been warned about his friend Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, once you've granted a man a certain amount of power, you either have to adopt him or kill him. And, well, Nero wasn't looking to adopt. Corbulo received the emperor's summons in Antioch, and made his way by ship to Cancrea in Greece. He was met there by Nero's agents, who passed along the emperor's command. Without hesitation, the aged general drew his sword and plunged it into his chest, famously shouting, Axios, or I am worthy. With this final act, Corbulo proved his devotion was a match for any zealots, though few Romans would have entertained the comparison. Back in Galilee, Joseph learned of a zealot assault against the southern city of Ascalon, repulsed by its Roman garrison with heavy Jewish losses. But he mainly kept alert for major legionary movements, and the identity of the commander the Romans would send against them. In the spring of 67 AD, all his questions were answered. Titus Flavius Vespasianus was a former consul and African governor who'd earned his military stripes during Claudius's conquest of Britannia. Rumor had it he'd run afoul of Nero's mother, Agrippina Minor, and his career only resumed after her murder. More recent rumor had Nero sending Vespasian east in a fit of pique, after the aged veteran fell asleep during one of his recitals. At most, that rumor held a grain of truth. By all accounts, Vespasian was clearly the best man for the job, and Joseph was staring down the worst of all possible worlds. Joseph learned that Vespasian was already in Syria, having sent his son Titus to Egypt to collect two additional legions and march them north. Before long, a stunning array of forces had been gathered at Ptolemais. To start with, there were the two Egyptian legions, the 5th and 10th, along with the 15th Syrian legion and 23 additional cohorts. Auxiliaries were provided by King Herod Agrippa II, who'd somehow survived Gallus' retreat, 
King Antiochus IV of Commagene, King Gaius Julius Sohamus of Emesa, and King Malchus II of Nabatea. In all, Vespasian's army amounted to 60,000 soldiers. Moving into Galilee, the Romans soon made for the city of Jotapata, known to the Jews as Yodfat. A large body of Jewish insurgents had gathered in the city, and Vespasian wanted to deal them a crushing blow. But he was also deliberate, giving Roman engineers three days to level the roads so his cavalry could approach the site with ease. At the same time, Joseph entered the city, hoping to aid its defense. When the Romans learned that the Galilean general was present, Jotapata became an even more valuable prize. Vespasian made camp a mile to the north, on a small hill in clear view of the city walls. In a reverse of Beth Haran, he had Jotapata completely surrounded by multiple rows of infantry and cavalry, blocking all possible escape routes. The next day he attacked. In desperation, Joseph led Jewish militants out from the city gates in a furious effort to drive the Romans from the walls. A hard day's fighting ensued, and was only ended when both sides withdrew at sundown. The next day's fighting was equally indecisive. Stymied by Jotapata's strong position and the unexpected vigor of its defenders, Vespasian decided to step back and rethink the situation. His next move was to build an earthen ramp up to the most vulnerable part of the wall. To cover its construction, Vespasian set up nearly 200 engines for throwing stones, darts, and lances and set them into motion. He also ordered his archers and slingers to maintain a constant volley. But when the ramp finally reached the battlements, Vespasian found that Joseph had countered him, by having workmen build the wall even higher. Stonewalled again, literally, Vespasian resorted to the blunt instrument of starving the population. Joseph knew that Jotapata had stockpiled enough corn to last some time. But the critical resource was water, since the city had no natural spring. As weeks passed and the situation became more dire, Joseph devised a bold strategy. He used some of the remaining water to soak a huge number of blankets, then hung them from the city walls to dry. When Vespasian saw the soaking laundry, he reasoned the Jews must have plenty of water and was compelled to return to more aggressive tactics. A Roman battering ram came near to breaking through the wall before Joseph was able to set it on fire. One particularly brave defender threw down a large stone, broke off the ram's head, scrambled down to retrieve it, and brought it back inside the city, taking five Roman darts in the process. And no, we're not talking about little pub darts, though I guess they would sting, but foot-long lead-weighted Roman arrows called plumbata. They were also known as martio barbuli, or little barbs of Mars. So, yeah, ouch. But no matter how crazy or spirited his defense, Joseph knew it was just a matter of time. 
Sure enough, within a few days, Vespasian ordered the city be taken by storm. Armored siege towers rained down missiles from above, as the earthen ramp finally reached the height of the city walls. And while the courage and dedication of the defenders never flagged, they were finally undone by a deserter. As Joseph later learned, the desperate figure revealed to Vespasian the perfect timing for a Roman attack. At the designated hour, legionaries approached Jotapata in utter silence. Vespasian's son Titus led the first group over the wall, cutting the throats of the watchmen and entering the city. In short order, the Romans had secured the citadel and opened the city gates. After 48 days of siege and conflict, the Romans poured into Jotapata seeking vengeance. All the defenders who were found, some 40,000 men, women, and children, were either slaughtered or taken as slaves. Joseph tried to elude the Romans by jumping into a deep pit, only to find that it opened into a large cave whose entrance was well concealed from above. As it happened, the cave held forty of Jotapata's leading citizens, who'd somehow managed to escape the carnage, and enough provisions to last some time. But only a few days later, their presence was discovered, and Vespasian started sending military tribunes to negotiate for Joseph's surrender. The third tribune he sent, a man named Nicanor, was an old friend of Joseph's, and convinced the rebel general he'd be treated with leniency, even respect. It's the kind of offer only a desperate man would consider, and Joseph was very desperate. In his mind, a mind well-trained in Jewish scholarship and prophecy and the interpretation of dreams, the kernel of an idea began to take shape. Of course, the idea could only be executed if he were to live, and, as a pious Jew, he could only live if he could reconcile it with God's plan. This was the leap of faith demanded, and Greek logic mingled with Jewish belief to provide a rationale. If God had made the Romans the instrument of his wrath, how could Joseph be faulted for working with them? Not as a traitor to his people, but as an emissary of God. This is the moment on which the axis of his character spins, and I, for one, am prepared to cut him a pretty major amount of slack. Joseph never wanted war with Rome, but when push came to shove, he did his utmost to defend his people. And if he relied on a bit of convenient rationalization to justify preserving his life, it's not as if anything would have been gained by his death. And, of course, it's hard to overestimate how beneficial his decision would be to later scholarship. But all that was still a ways down the road. Joseph's immediate problems were the forty men in his cave who were not prepared to cut him slack. Even after he unleashed a pretty compelling speech about why they should all prefer life to death, it was pretty clear they'd already made up their minds. No one there was getting out alive, Joseph least of all. As he surveyed his companions, meeting each determined gaze, there's also a chance he was doing something else, 
counting. Yes, Joseph told them, it must be death, but not some random bloody free-for-all. Let every third man be killed by his companion and continue around the ever-smaller circle until none are left. Since this approach seemed fair to everyone, they soon put it in motion, eventually leaving only Joseph and one other man to kill each other or themselves. And while Joseph had been unable to sway the multitude, he was overqualified to convince a single holdout. Together, they told the tribune of their surrender. Nicanor immediately took Joseph before Vespasian, who was with his son Titus and two companions. It must have presented a striking contrast. On the one side, the stocky, robust Roman general and his 28-year-old son, both with their broad, Flavian features and dressed in full military regalia. And on the other, the Jewish general Joseph, roughly Titus's age, but haggard, half-starved, and bearded, and dressed in battered armor freshly stained with the blood of his companions. Titus expressed sympathy for Joseph's situation, striking a Croesus-like note about the fickleness of fortune. But Vespasian told his son that the general's fate would be for Nero to decide. This was the moment on which everything hinged. Summoning every ounce of authority he could muster, Joseph spoke the words that would change the Roman Empire. O Vespasian, though you suppose you have taken captive a forsaken Josephus, I have come as a messenger of great tidings. Had I not been sent by God to you, I know the law of the Jews, and how it is fitting for generals to die. Do you send me to Nero? For what? Will any successors of Nero endure until you? You, Vespasian, are to be Caesar and Emperor, you and this your son. Bind me now still more securely, and keep me for yourself, for you were not only lord over me, but over the land and the sea and all the human race. It's hard to overstate how radical a play Joseph was making. Up until now, every single Roman emperor had been a Julio-Claudian. I mean, sure, there'd been assassinations and plots, with the goal of putting some pretender on the throne. But even if they'd succeeded, most of their power bases were so narrow that the empire would have been plunged into anarchy. There was simply no concept of anyone from outside the royal family making any sort of legitimate claim to the throne. So what Joseph was asking Vespasian to contemplate wasn't just treason, which, yeah, it totally was, but more like madness. A loyal Roman general should have killed him on the spot, or sent him to Nero for punishment. But neither of these things happened. Instead, Vespasian decided to follow Joseph's advice and kept him close by his side. And more than that, Joseph began to find himself the recipient of fine clothes, expensive gifts, and friendly words. As it turned out, Vespasian's soldiers had interrogated Jewish captives from Jotapata and returned with confirmation of Joseph's wisdom and sagacity. 
Whether or not he'd ever considered it before, Vespasian had opened his mind to the possibility of ruling the Roman Empire. Not immediately. After all, he still had a war to win. But eventually. And this ambition bound him very securely to the well-being of his companion. The former general soon to be known as Titus Flavius Josephus. Josephus. 